Stop the presses. Pull out the front page. Stand by for a replay. Yeah, it's those two guys from Milwaukee. Oh, those two guys from Milwaukee. Here we go again. It's those two guys from Milwaukee. Welcome to Unknown Orbits, the podcast in which two writers discuss everything science fiction from Gernsbach to Roddenberry. Welcome to episode 20 of Unknown Orbits, Deadline by Cleve Cartmill. I'm Patrick Baird. And I'm Steve Reitze. Today we're going to be looking at a controversial story from the March 1944 issue of Astounding Magazine. We're also going to be discussing whether or not science fiction should or is predictive. So to start out, we'll give you a little bit of background on the story here. It opens up during a a war between two rival factions on a planet. One of them is called Sixa, which is Axis spelled backwards, and the Sila, which is Allies spelled backwards. And remember, this is in 1944. I find this to be subtle writing. (laughs) Yeah, that's an amazingly subtle hint to the reader. But it is a completely different planet. They have like weird interplanetary names instead of John and Kathy and Fred. So our hero, who's a espionage agent for the good guys, the Scylla, parachutes into enemy territory. And once he's on the ground, He immediately kills the whole crew of a gun emplacement for no reason. And then he goes on to try to make contact to get into the city where a evil Sixa scientist is building a nuclear weapon. He is immediately captured, however, by a female resistance leader who thinks he's a government spy. And she holds him prisoner and threatens him with torture. And he tries to convince her, look, I'm on your side. I'm here to find this scientist and destroy this bomb. And there's all kinds of coincidences and things, but they eventually wind up being captured and they are taken to the scientist, which is very fortunate for our hero, the espionage agent, who tells him all of his plans before threatening to kill him. Of course. And of course, he knocks him out grabs the bomb, walks out of the heavily guarded enemy fortification, gets on a plane, and they disable the bomb and throw it into the ocean, and everybody lives happily ever after. Do you recall the comic book series from the 1940s, Air Aces? I'm familiar with it. I don't think I've ever read any of it, but I I know it's like we talked about before. They're aviation stories, which was a big genre back in the 30s and 40s. If I recall correctly... It was basically just uh, Army Air Force propaganda. I had a few issues, and I read them, though it's been a lot of years since then. But this plot in Deadline doesn't sound so much like science fiction, except it is on another planet. So in that era, it automatically... It's it's exactly the same as, as 1940s Europe. I mean, it is otherwise completely undistinguished, except their names are like Jantor and Kamdu or whatever. I always got to go for the hyphenated names. Yeah, it's that's like... Yeah, lazy science fiction writing, golden age, you know, number one. I sometimes wonder how they regarded their audiences. I know from my readings that at least the majority of the editors and the writers took the job seriously and they took the concept seriously. But I do wonder sometimes if an editor or writer ever said, ah, it's just for 13-year-olds anyway. Well, this is a good opportunity to go into the backstory of this particular story and why it's an important and controversial story. So this was Astounding Magazine, of course. So it was John W. Campbell, the editor at the time. And he deliberately 
wanted to write an atom bomb story. And again, this is 1944, long before the atom bomb was known to the public. But the science of atomic warfare and atomic fission was not a huge secret. As a matter of fact, a lot of the details of this story, Campbell got it about half right in terms of the science of atomic bombs. He got some of it very, very right, some of it not right at all. But he took some of it out of a scientific article that was published previously. He had an education at MIT, so he was technically very knowledgeable. And there had been all kinds of previous discussions in science fiction about atom bombs or radium bombs or things of the like. So this was not exactly a tremendous leap of insight on the part of John W. Campbell, but he deliberately wanted to publish a story that talked about the atom bomb as a real thing, not in a very alien context. As we said, this is like Europe 1944, slightly disguised. So they did publish it and it immediately came to the attention of the authorities from my reading, my impression was that Campbell expected everyone to pat him on the head, say how clever he was, and sell more magazines, but it did not go that well. Well, I don't know if he really expected to have government agents come visit him at the offices, which is what happened, because as I said, some of it was exactly correct, some of it was not, and coincidentally, maybe not too coincidentally, a lot of the workers at Los Alamos, which is where the Manhattan Project at the time was underway, were fans of Astounding Magazine and fans of science fiction in general. There is a little bit of a trivia. Campbell would keep track of where the subscription issues went, and a suspiciously large number of issues all went to this remote post office by White Sands. In New Mexico, yeah. Yeah. So the government agents were kind of putting two and two together. They were saying these people that are working on this super secret project are fans of this magazine. And this magazine just coincidentally publishes a story that has these details of the atomic bomb in it. So they were very worried that somebody at Los Alamos was leaking information to Campbell. And that was the thrust of their investigation. By all accounts, that was not the case. There was nobody leaking anything to Campbell. As I pointed out, a lot of this stuff was already available in the public domain. Campbell actually had some letters that he exchanged correspondence with people talking about this stuff previously. None of them were Los Alamos workers. There were scientific journals, and there was actually some stories written in science fiction that went into some detail of atomic warfare previously. Going back to Wells, who had a really crude version of attacking with uranium pellets. Right. What you're referring to is the H.G. Wells story, The World Set Free, which was published in 1913. It was about uh, a bomb that was not a city-destroying nuclear weapon, but a blaze, quote, blazing continual explosion with a half-life of 17 days. So they would drop these bombs, which were like small bombs or grenades on a battlefield, and it would burn like phosphorus. It would burn for a long time, making the area uninhabitable. That was Wells's contribution all the way back in 1913. And then you had Robert Heinlein in May 1941, Astounding. Again, a story suggested by Campbell wrote a story called Solution Unsatisfactory, which is warfare with atomic dust. And there were parts of that story that had atomic warfare technical details correct. 
but it wasn't a bomb. It was this dust that they would sprinkle over an area and it would kill everybody in the area. But it did predict mutually assured destruction and was written before the Manhattan Project was actually started. I always like to look at the perspective of the writers at the time. Their knowledge of radioactivity was that some materials have this radiant energy. So all these science fiction stories are attempts to figure out how do we get from this rock that has energy coming out of it to making that energy come out all at once. Well, actually, atomic fission had been, I don't know whether it was actually demonstrated or whether it was proved to be scientifically possible a few years earlier in the late 1930s. Again, that was a publicly known fact. You're talking about the Chicago pile under the lacrosse cart, no, University I, of Chicago? I think it was in 1938. A couple of scientists proved that atomic fission was possible. I think that was an intermediate step between that and the Manhattan Project. If I recall, and I could be wrong on this, I believe the importance of that first pile at the University of Chicago was demonstrating an ongoing reaction. Right. And then the next step is like an instantaneous reaction. Right, right. So there was abundant material out there in the public domain that could lead an intelligent person like John W. Campbell to figure out that there could be such a thing as an atomic bomb and how it would work in general. And like I said, he got about half of it right. So the uh, authorities visited him and grilled him and put the writer, Cleve Cartmill, under surveillance for a couple of months to see whether or not he was being passed information from sources or whatever. And, you know, nothing came of that. So he was cleared. And they basically got John W. Campbell to agree for the duration of the war that he would no longer publish any atomic-related materials. And that's how he got off the hook. It was a controversial story. Just to give you a little background, in March of 1944, World War II was still very much in doubt. The Allies had made significant advances. They had won Sicily. We had had the Battle of Midway at that point in the Pacific. The invasion of Anzio in Italy, however, was very much in doubt. And there was a lot of very hard fighting ahead for quite a long time in Italy between the Allies and the Nazis. You had the Battle of Monte Cassino which was nearly a disaster for the Allies. The Nazis were committing atrocities in the uh, Soviet Union. My World War II knowledge is largely trivial. Can I ask, was the Battle of the Bulge the turning point for the Germans? Not necessarily. Well, I, I know that, it was like their last push. This is very much a tangent here that we're going to go on very briefly. But the Battle of Kursk in Russia was believed to have been the actual turning point of World War II in Europe. That was a battle where there was the Kursk salient. There was a bulge, just like the bulge in the Battle of the Bulge, where the Germans had penetrated into the Soviet lines and the Soviets kind of lured the Germans into an attack where they committed all of their armor and over the course of a few days they destroyed most of the German armor and broke the back of the Germans in the east. And the Germans from that point on were never able to take on any offensive capabilities in the eastern front. So basically the war in the eastern front was all but over after the Battle of Kursk. And that was a full year before the landings in Normandy. Oh. Yeah. So the landings in Normandy were kind of the death blow to Germany to the extent that they were already losing the war in the East. They had lost the war in the East and had lost a lot of men, millions of men killed or captured. The Battle of the Bulge, which came six months after the invasion of Normandy, 
was the last gasp of the German war machine. Hitler committed whatever remaining reserves he had at a desperate attempt to divide the Allied lines, reach the sea, and force the, the Allies to sue for peace on favorable terms. And that failed, and that was the end of it for him, basically. So to put a cap on the contemporary background to this story publication, the war was not anywhere near to being resolved at that point. The outcome was still in doubt. The Battle of Kursk had not happened yet. So it's understandable for the government to be very concerned that their top military secret might have leaked. That gives you a background where this was indeed a very serious matter from the point of view of the government. And that brings up a very interesting question. I think. Because what happened was after the war and after the dropping of the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Campbell was very quick to claim that he had predicted the atomic bomb in Astounding Magazine, took it as a point of pride. He advanced the idea that this was the value of science fiction, that it was predicting the future, and that the very smart guys like him that either edited or wrote science fiction were leading America into the future with their wisdom. Uh, I know people have different opinions on Campbell. I see it as a mix of being a sincere cheerleader for the field and being egotistical about it. Well, there was certainly ego involved there. And that brings us into our secondary discussion here. I just wanted to mention before we jump completely into that, that Campbell was not the only person who predicted the atomic bomb and got in trouble for it. The writer Philip Wiley, who we've talked about previously, wrote a story in 1945 called The Paradise Crater, which was about a 1965 Nazi conspiracy to use uranium-237 to build an atomic bomb. And the level, I didn't read the story, so I don't know if it had the level of technical accuracy that Campbell's did, but it certainly was significant enough that he wound up with a six-month house arrest by the government for having written and published that story. That big a reaction, I'm surprised. Right. The atomic bomb was further along, obviously, in 1945 than it was in 1944. And I don't know whether there was a difference between 1944 and 1945 in terms of the seriousness of the matter, or maybe they were like, damn it, we're sick of these darn science fiction writers and their little stories screwing up our security. So maybe they decided to make an example of him um, and put him under a six-month house arrest. I haven't read that story. Do you recall what the mechanism was? Maybe it was more accurate. No, I didn't read the story, and I didn't really get a detailed description of it other than it was, uh, they used uranium-237 to build an atomic bomb. Okay. So if you remember our previous discussion about Philip Wiley, he was another very smart guy like John W. Campbell. He actually became involved in what eventually became the Nuclear Regulatory Commission at one point. So obviously he was somebody who, like Campbell, probably through all of the public domain information that was out there, was able to put together some pieces to come up with a feasible atomic bomb scenario. Very similar. In his case, he, he got a lot more severe punishment than Campbell did. But again, shortly afterwards, you had Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Now you have the field of science fiction having made a major prediction numerous times of one of the most important developments in human history. I think it may have gone to the heads of some writers and editors that they were the, as I said before, the wise sages leading America into the future. 
but you also had a turn away from looking at atomic energy and atomic power as boon to mankind to you started to see more apocalyptic science fiction stories that depicted a terrible outcome of nuclear war and nuclear weapons. Throughout the 1950s, you had a lot of apocalyptic stories being written that were post-nuclear Armageddon. We first had the possibility of a nuclear Armageddon. The public was trying to figure out how to deal with that possibility. So naturally, science fiction covered it. Yeah, I don't know whether that would have happened if the Russians wouldn't have found their own bomb. Once the Russians had the bomb, and then once we had the hydrogen bomb, and then they followed shortly thereafter with their own hydrogen bomb, then nuclear war was a real thing. Probably in the immediate post-war period, it may not have been as big of a thing. But certainly, as anybody can attest who lived through that period, I didn't. I wasn't born then. Nuclear paranoia was a real thing. So it made sense that science fiction writers would have exploited that and written post-apocalyptic, grim stories of survivors of a horrible nuclear war. Mainstream writers like Pat Frank. Sure. Neville Shoots on the Beach. That's a book that I read when I was a teenager and I really liked. And the movie I thought was a pretty good adaptation. It is a great movie. There's others that I can't think of at the moment that were out there. You know, it was the sort of thing that would appear in the Saturday Evening Post, probably. It was part of the general discussion. So that brings me around again to how important is it for science fiction to be predictive? Is that central to science fiction writers, or is it for the field as a whole? Should science fiction remain predictive? Should science fiction writers concern themselves with the obligation to try to be predictive? As someone who's currently writing science fiction, I do feel that pull in my work, because if you're writing about at least the near future, you have to think about a lot of different things. How are things going to progress between today and this future that I'm writing about? What developments are going to occur between now and then or likely to occur between now and then that are relevant to my story? And which developments that could happen would I choose to have happen in my world because it's important to my story that I'm telling? So I can see where that is something that you certainly would think about at least. Is it saying this might be an element in the future and we are going to start thinking about how we deal with it? You are making me realize part of the function of predictive science fiction is to say, well, this might be coming. So let's think about some possibilities to get more comfortable with the idea. And I'll give you a really good example that I'm confronting in my current work in progress, the Nowhere Navy. And let you bounce off of this. So I would state that any science fiction writer who's going to be writing a story set in the next 100 years here on Earth is going to have to account for the effect of climate change. Yes. Because one way or another, climate change is going to have an impact on civilization, on individual countries, on entire regions over the next few decades. And there's many different possibilities. We may do nothing and suffer the consequences. We may get our act together somehow and ameliorate the consequences. But I think as a writer who's going to be writing a future world set 20 years from now, 80 years from now, 120 years from now, you have to, in your own mind, say, what do I think is likely to happen? And 
what's the best outcome of that particular situation for my story? In my world that I'm creating, climate change came in the 2030s and 40s. It had very significant effects on certain parts of the globe. Certain countries were devastated and broken apart by climate change. For instance, I postulate that China ceases to be a significant nation as a result partly of climate change, that other countries, countries that were spared climate change effects for the most part, like Russia, Canada, and most of Africa, rise to become the major superpowers after they get climate change more or less under control. That's my choice that I made for my world. But Anybody can make any number of different choices for their world, but I think that as a writer, you have to account for that. If you were writing a science fiction novel in 1950, set in 1990, you would have to account for the possibility of nuclear war. Did the countries of the world come together and get rid of nuclear weapons? Was there a nuclear war? Was there almost a nuclear war? These are the questions I think that you have to answer as a science fiction writer, and you can make the decision which way you're going to go based solely on how it serves your story. And it doesn't really matter whether it's predictive or not, but you have to make that choice. But again, you can also say it's really important for me to make this point that I really believe this is what's going to happen with climate change. For world building, I think that's essential. And I think if you're going to do a good job as a science fiction writer, you have to have good world building. That's key. But me personally, I'm not terribly concerned whether 50 years from now, somebody's going to, if that's even possible, someone reads one of my books and goes, well, this is a load of crap. Boy, did he get that wrong. Wait a minute. He predicted the Titanic. (laughs) Yes. So yeah, the point of emphasis, but it may be a bigger point of emphasis for some writers and some stories than others. How do you think about predictive science fiction? Is it a factor in in your writing or anything that you might be writing? Of course, you're writing time travel stuff. So you're kind of going the opposite direction. Well, I've done other stuff, but actually, you're right. I haven't done that much significantly in the future. As I look back on my creative process, I think mostly it starts from an observation that I feel I'm making and other people don't see. And then the plot comes from that. That seems like a very basic science fiction writer impulse that you see something that you think other people aren't seeing this. I may have a unique insight into this. Not that you're particularly brilliant. Well, in the case of people like John W. Campbell and Philip Wiley and some of these other people, they were very smart people who had very high levels of technical expertise. So for them, yes, they were seeing technical possibilities and things and were basing their predictive fiction off of their technical knowledge. But for guys like you and me, who are not terribly technical, scientific in our background, it's more of a maybe a society's reaction to some things or thinking about, well, if this trend continues, since we're right around the corner from an election here, let's just look at the possibility of, well, you know, one of the things that's a debate in this election is, is democracy going to survive? I think that's overstated, but it's the sort of thing that you're sitting here in this environment and an idea as a science fiction writer might occur to you of like, well, here's a take on that idea that I don't think I've seen anybody else have. And that's the basis for a good story for me was feeling that you see something that other people don't does remind me of a story idea that I really want to write, so I'm not going to go into it here. So I came to be thinking about Fermi's paradox, which is an old concept, saying if there is intelligent life all over the universe and some of it's going to be more advanced than us, 
Why haven't they traveled to meet us? Why don't we see evidence of aliens? Right. And I realized I had a different answer. Why, if we have technology and we're intelligent, what keeps us from going out? And that's a good example. It's not the sort of question that can be answered with existing science. And that's why Fermi's paradox exists is because the scientists don't know the answer to the problem. But it's a good example of science fiction writer having an idea that is not necessarily predictive, but is trying to answer a question. And whether the question is answered correctly or not is really not that important. It's that you've taken an idea and you've tangled with it as a writer, and you've done it in a way that's entertaining and illuminating to the reader. So I think that's a good way to try to define, to me, the real quality of semi-predictive science fiction. I've got a couple quotes here from science fiction writers that take some contrary views that I think will be interesting to consider. The first one is from Isaac Asimov. He said, Individual science fiction stories may seem as trivial as ever to the blinder critics and philosophers of today, but the core of science fiction, its essence, has become crucial to our salvation if we are to be saved at all. I bet that's taken from his famous article in the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists in the late 40s, I think. So post-Hiroshima and Nagasaki, as I referred to before, it's a science fiction writer positioning themselves as a prophet of the future who's not only important, but essential, crucial to our salvation, that all of these smart people have to listen to him and all the other smart people in science fiction so that they're prepared for the future. I have never heard of a plan to improve society that did not put the speakers group at the top. Well, of course, that's a fundamental human trait. So that's one perspective from Isaac Asimov. Here's another one. This is from Ursula K. Le Guin, who's somewhat more of a less hard science fiction writer than Isaac Asimov. Science fiction is not predictive. It is descriptive. Predictions are uttered by prophets, free of charge, by clairvoyants, who usually charge a fee and are therefore more honored in their day than prophets, and by futurologists, salaried. Prediction is the business of prophets, clairvoyants, and futurologists. It is not the business of novelists. A novelist's business is lying. I don't think I like her view. I do. I'm totally much more in line with what she's saying than what Isaac Asimov is saying. Well... I don't like Asimov's view either. So I think what she's saying is that, and I've heard this from other authors, this is not a unique point to Ursula K. Le Guin, that as a novelist, you are lying to the reader. You're tricking the reader. You're misleading the reader at times. You make them think you're saying one thing or you're going to do one thing, and then you say or do another thing. So there is a certain amount of dishonesty in writing a good piece of fiction sometimes. But it serves the plot. Like when you're telling a joke... You're leading someone down the garden path, making sure they see everything you need them to see and making sure they don't see anything you don't want them to see, because otherwise it would ruin the ending. Yes, it's the same concept. So I think that's very interesting that two successful science fiction authors had two completely polar opposite views of predictability in science fiction. One that it's not only essential to science fiction, but it's essential to the future of the human race. Another one who's basically saying, no, it's not essential at all. 
You know, I didn't take that from Ursula Le Guin. Maybe that's why I viewed her quote so negatively. Well, let's just review it. Prediction is the business of prophets, clairvoyants, and futurologists. It is not the business of novelists. So she's basically saying that trying to predict the future is something that a science fiction novelist should not be concerning themselves with, which is probably a fairly extreme because I think there are a lot of earnest, well-intended and well-founded writers who did try to predict the future and came up with some very good stories and some of which did predict the future. So I think she's probably a little too far out on the extreme of the other end. Well, I think she phrases it a little harshly and maybe a little kind of being a gatekeeper. I see her point, but that's one of the aspects of science fiction we really enjoy is the prediction. I think some people do. Again, I'm not a big fan of absolutes. I believe within the broad realm of science fiction, there's room for predictive science fiction. I don't give a damn if this is going to turn out true science fiction and stuff that's somewhere in the middle that at least adds to its world building and believability by addressing issues of potential future happenings. That's probably where I fall is square in the middle. I have one final thought. In my mind, there's a big difference between saying, oh, I think someday we're going to be able to generate a single frequency of light and it will have these advantages and we'll call it a laser. There's something else in saying we have this magical device that when you press a button, you will dissolve and you will be reassembled somewhere else. I hate the idea that people look at so many things Star Trek and say, Roddenberry invented this, that, and the other thing, which he did not. He, he made it up. Well, that's a whole other episode. And that would actually be a, a fun episode to do, is to look at the technology of Star Trek. Any other th- points to make, Steve? I think we've covered it abundantly. I agree. Well, that's it for episode 20. Please tune in next week for another journey into the golden age of science fiction. I'm Patrick Baird. And I'm Steve Reitze. Keep watching the sky. That's all for today. Pat and I thank you for listening and invite you to come back for the next episode of Unknown Orbits. Two guys from Milwaukee.